Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you're joining us this morning. Would you stand and we'll begin to worship our Heavenly Father this morning.
Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now. And refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Cross he proved we are all 
sons, we are the daughters of God. redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do adore you and we love you. The work that you have done, the work that you foresaw, uh, the work that you do for us, the way you have taken our lives and made them righteous through your Son. God, we thank you for that. We praise you. We ask that you would continue to open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds to who you are, as we continue to worship you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We all may take a seat. Good morning and welcome to Redemption Church, Alhambra. We are glad that you are here. If you're new, we welcome you. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Redemption Church, Redemption Church is one church with ten congregations in Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. 
My name is Frank. I'm one of the uh, four pastors who are here uh, amongst uh, also a much larger staff. Um, and if you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk to us about, be sure to come and say hello to us. Tyler James is not here today, one of the pastors, but uh, Tyler Thompson is. He was just up here. Trey is also here. He's one of the other pastors as well. A um, couple of announcements uh, just to remind you about uh, Easter weekend. I want to remind you, first of all, that on Easter Sunday, we are going to have baptisms during both services. The services are going to be out on the patio, uh, and that's to probably, uh, hopefully, accommodate for larger crowds um, on the patio. And the, uh, the service times are going to change slightly. It'll be at 9 and 1045 instead of 9 and 1030. But going forward after Easter, we're going to be at 9 and 1045, just like we were uh, pre-COVID. So uh, baptisms, if you want to know anything more about that, please get in touch with me. And my email should be up on the screen right now. No? There. There it is. Yeah, you can email me if you want to talk about baptisms. Uh, other things for Easter weekend, uh, we have the uh, card writing campaign to uh, the prisoners. And if you want to participate in that, there's a table out in the lobby you can look at uh, for that. We've already had a, a tremendous response to that, but we'd love even more. Uh, we're doing that with our partnership with uh, Alongside Ministries. Uh, also for Holy Weekend, uh, Good Friday, we have two services, 6 and 7.30. They're going to be about 55 minutes each, uh, mostly driven by uh, music. And then Saturday morning, we're having a church picnic and an Easter egg hunt at 10 o'clock. We'd love for you to be able to come to that. And then, of course, uh, Easter Sunday. We, oh, yeah, <laughs> forgot. See, I didn't need my notes, so I just left it there. We do have these cards that will help remind you. Those are out in the lobby, and this will give you all the information on uh, Easter weekend. So we talked uh, a month ago about how we were sort of trying to restart a lot of the things that we did pre-COVID that, um, that we like and miss. <laughs> we're not going to restart anything that we don't miss, but we, we are trying to... <laughs> We are trying to restart the things that we like and miss and uh, kind of slowly working them back into our service. Uh, and one of those things is the All of Life interviews, and so we have one today. Uh, but this All of Life interview is going to be with somebody that should be pretty familiar to many of you if you've been around here a long time, number one. But number two, it's really just a teaser for a larger event that we're going to have on April 21st, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if you could please welcome Hannah Keels up here. Thank you. It's nice to be in uh, Redemption Arcadia. As opposed to? You, oh, no, don't, don't go us. there. Don't go there. Okay. You welcomed us to Alhambra. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, so Hannah, tell us how long you've been around Redemption Church and yeah, so how you ended up coming here. That's actually, six years ago, I came on a little uh, trip out to Arizona to scope out if we wanted to live here. So we actually came to Arcadia, um, and when we moved in June, we stayed. So I've been in the church almost six years. And you've been part of leadership, in and out of leadership? Yeah, so I got to participate in um, women's ministry and running some of the events. And back then, I had long, flowing, curly brown hair. So I yeah. might look a little different to you, but I did get to run some of the events, some of the women's luncheons, and we did gather and flourish, which were so special. And then it was, what, uh, three, three and a half years ago you were diagnosed with cancer? So in 2016, so Four and easy, a half years yes. ago, yeah, sorry. Um, so I was diagnosed with cancer. The same year that I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband left me, um, went through a divorce, went through mastectomy. Um, a lot of really hard things the following year. It spread, so I lost my career. Um, the following year, one of my best friends took her own life, um, which who she attended here. Um, and so I ended up writing a book about it uh, called Faith Like Skin, little shameless plug. Um, <laughs> but it was a story about, you know, hitting all of these five major stressors in two and a half years and learning where to go with it. And God just really taught me to go to him. Like I had nothing left to hold on to in this earth. I didn't have my best friend. I didn't have a husband, security, no job. No real thing on this earth was saving me. And so it's just this really um, incredible time of God just excavating all the things I was holding. Well, I thought all the things I was holding on to. 
So you lost your best friend, you lost your husband, but now you have a best friend and a husband, and he's pretty much the same yes. dude, right? Same person, right? Uh, well, Tell yes, Jesus. <laughs> he is my first love. I made that very clear when I met my next husband. <laughs> I, I forget how careful I have to be around Hannah because she's, she's on top of it. That's true. <laughs> Um, so tell us about meeting Chuck and how all that happened. Well, meeting Chuck, why don't Chuck, you stand up and just wave at everybody? It's the other bald guy in the room. <laughs> <laughs> meeting Chuck. He's, he's in solidarity with yes, you. Yes, okay. he is. But he is actually has a whole story too. So the reason he's in solidarity is because the same year that I moved here in 2015, he actually had end-stage cancer, given three months to live, and had a, a miraculous encounter with Jesus. And... He's here today, you guys. So it's a great story and another shameless plug. And um, the reason I met him was Heather, who was our children's ministry leader for so many years here. Um, he happens to be her cousin. And so um, she told me about him because I'd finished writing my book. And I was trying to figure out how to produce it or publish it. And so she's like, you guys should meet. And um, so we met. And three months later, Frank married us on January 1st, 2020. And, and I'll never forget how you left the wedding ceremony. They have a tandem bike. And on the back it said, just married, and they rode off. <laughs> that was our limo. And we lived three blocks away, so it wasn't that far away. <laughs> Still, it was awesome. But we were his first marriage of many in 2020. That's so. right. Yeah, the first one in 2020. Yeah, Good that was very you. special. So... What we're going to do on April 21st is we're going to sort of resurrect backstories, which is something we used to do on weeknights, where we would allow people to come in and give a much fuller account of their story and their story with Jesus and just everything else. And so we're going to do that on April 21st from 6.30 to 7.45. And Chuck's going to be up here with Hannah and I, and we're going to just unpack all of this because there are many backstories, incredible stories about what God has done in your life as well. And I do have one other question for you. Um, when people have everything in the wheelhouse, when their, their career is going well, when they've got money, uh, when they have great relationships, when they have their health, when it just seems like everything is running very smoothly, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to say, do not live in a spirit of fear. And what I've seen from you is that you lost virtually all of those things. Mm -hmm. And yet, if anything, you have amped up the fact that you are not going to live in a spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, just as a teaser for April 21st. Well... Um, I live in a spirit of victory. You know, I recognize I'm victorious in Jesus. And so there's nothing on this earth that's going to take me away from that. You know, and I, I recognize if I die, I'm with him. And when I walk on this earth, he's with me the whole way. And so there is no, I don't have fear anymore. There's nothing that's going to separate me from the love of God. And so I, I, he's taught me that through a lot of hard things like, breaking my neck last year, and not that he broke it, cancer broke it, um, but you know, the, the really hard things, like I was holding on to so many idols in this world, and he's just letting me let go, let go of that grip, and so part of that has been learning to trust him in all of it, all of the parts, and, you know, I just had radiation two days ago, and I'm in pain, and I don't know what tomorrow holds, I don't know what next month holds, and I hope I'm here, you know, but just to recognize that in every day that I get to live for him, that it's not going to be full of fear, but he gives me a spirit of power and love and self-control. That's awesome. Let me pray for you. Thank you. And please don't miss that uh, event on April 21st, uh, 6.30 right here in this room. Uh, Father God, we thank you for how you equip and empower and enable your people, and, and especially to be able to give us a testimony like Hannah and Chuck's. And so I just praise you for that. I pray that you would give both Hannah and Chuck your hope, your wisdom, your comfort, your provision, and your protection. And we pray over their ministry. They have a ministry to literally 
thousands and thousands of people all over this world now because of what you're doing through them. And so we thank you for that. So we pray for that ministry as well, that it would bear fruit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Hannah. Would you thank Hannah for coming up, please? And if you would please stand again for the reading of God's word. Good morning. The reading for today is from John 8, 39 through 47. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Wow. That was, that was a rough nine verses. That's a rough passage there. So uh, we'll see what we can do with that. Um, again, we are working our way through the Gospel of John a little bit at a time, but it's been really fruitful, I believe. And uh, today's passage is uh, rather short. It's only nine verses, but there's a ton that's going on behind the text. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to dig and, and pull some of that stuff out. And it's good stuff, but there's, there's some rough stuff going on there too. This debate that's been going on for a couple of chapters now between Jesus and primarily the professional religious people, the Jews, uh, it just continues to heat up and get testier and testier, and we're going to see that. What I want to do tonight, uh, today, this morning, I know what time it is. What I want to do right now <laughs> is... Um, we have to set the context, and I think the best way to do that today is to <clears throat> read verse 39, the first verse of our passage, and then, and then look at a, a few of the verses from last week, just to remind us where we are. So look at verse 39. They answered him. So these would be primarily the professional religious people, the professional Jewish religious people. And they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So to set the context, go back to 34 through 38. Jesus answered them after they challenged him yet again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So last week we talked about uh, defining the words enslavement and freedom and what they really mean. And one of the challenges is that the, the professional religious people had a different understanding and definition, a wrong definition of enslavement and freedom, and Jesus is trying to teach them the correct one. And he says, a slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then he says, I know that you were offspring of Abraham. He says, I get that. I get that genetically you're connected to Abraham, yet... You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So you may be genetically connected to Abraham, but you know nothing of God, and that's a problem because that wasn't Abraham's deal. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus says, you're slaves to sin even though you exude religious piety and commitment. You look really good on the outside, but you're covering up the darkness that's on the inside. 
And, he, and he's also trying to get at this idea that there's this fact that their religious traditions that they are so desperately married to are actually enslaving them to sin. Yeah, we need to understand that we may behave very religiously and think that, that those good works actually are doing something for us in our relationship with God, but many times religious activity is merely covering up the darkness that's in our heart and the sin that we're expressing, and that's what Jesus is trying to get across to these religious leaders. And he says, the reason... Um, that you can't hear me is that all this religious piety and activity on the outside is not allowing you to hear what I'm saying. It's not allowing the spirit to get in. Nevertheless, he says, I'm going to continue to push at you. We're going to continue to debate, even though it keeps getting amped up. And like I said, Jesus says, I admit you're connected to Abraham in a genealogical way. I will give you that, Jesus says. But the truth is, you're children of somebody else in reality because you do the work of that somebody else, and I'm about to explain who that somebody else is, and you're not going to like it. This isn't going to go very well. But Jesus would say, you need to remember, I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to pacify you. I'm here to glorify my Father. And so we get into this next passage. I've broken it up into two parts. Here's the first part, verses 39 through 43. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? So you look at verse 39, and their, their response is, Abraham is our father. And that's the root of their argument. And Jesus is already clearly in verse 37 acknowledged that they did descend from Abraham. He gives them that. But he disputes, and I would argue correctly because it's Jesus, he disputes uh, the problem, he says, is you're not behaving like you're the true offspring of Abraham. It's like you don't even know who Abraham was. These guys may have descended from Abraham, but they do not believe or obeyed as Abraham believed and obeyed. And Jesus is telling them that believing is the main thing, the essential thing. I imagine that Jesus perhaps had Genesis 26.5 in, in his mind as he was talking to them. This is what God says. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Jesus says, you may have descended from Abraham in a purely genealogical way, but you do not have Abraham's character. So you've got to stop claiming Abraham until you can have his character. Paul makes a very similar argument in Romans to many of the Jews that he's writing in the, in the church at Rome who are causing some problems with their Gentile brothers. Because they're Gentiles, they think they have an advantage over them. In Christ, there is no advantage. So Paul makes this argument to them in Romans chapter 9, where he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his, his offspring. But of course, these guys push back, and they say, and here's their argument in verse 41, as if verse 41 just clears everything right up. They say, we were not born in sexual immorality. That, that, that clears it up for us, right? I, I just, that seems like a strange and obscure retort here. There are other translations of this. Trying to get at what these guys are saying to Jesus. And here they are. We were not born of fornication. We were not born illicitly. We were not born illegitimately. 
So what exactly is it they're trying to tell Jesus? What are they trying to get at? There are two thoughts on this. The first one is the majority thought. It's the one that I would, I would take on and say this is probably it. It's a reference to Jesus' mother Mary and the shroud of, of scandal surrounding his birth. Many people had just not gotten past the idea that Joseph and Mary appeared to have violated their Jewish vows of celibacy and restraint before they were married. The story, the story that the Holy Spirit is the miraculous father of Jesus just doesn't, it strains credulity for many people. It doesn't wash. So this is the religious Jews' way of insulting Jesus. They are saying, our parents were properly married when they had sex and, and we were conceived, but not yours. That makes us legitimate and you illegitimate, which means your teaching cannot be trusted. It's the oldest insult known to humans. Denigrate somebody's mother, especially when you have run out of rational, reasonable arguments. That's what you do. <laughs> Most commentators believe that's exactly what's going on here. There is possibly a second explanation, and maybe it's kind of a combination of the, of the two. What they're saying possibly is, well, we know we have legitimately because we know we're born of the genetic line of Abraham, and that alone makes us legitimate. Jesus, of course, has been saying that this alone is not sufficient uh, for a person being of God. However, they say to Jesus, we can't be sure of you. We don't know if you came from Abraham. Therefore, you are not legitimate. Of course, Jesus says to them and has been saying to them, you've got it wrong and you keep getting it wrong. I came from God. I'm the son of the father. Physical, genetic connection to Abraham is not what counts. Just saying the name Abraham doesn't get you off the hook. It's like saying, I go to church. That makes me a Christian. I give money. That makes me a Christian. I have a Bible. That makes me a Christian. I do good works. That makes me a Christian. I'm respected in my community. That makes me a Christian. I'm a nice person. That makes me a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. That makes me a Christian. Tom Schrader used to say, I was born in Kansas and drive a truck. That makes me a Christian. <laughs> See, saying that I'm okay because I was born from Abraham or I'm okay because I attend church or I'm okay because I give money or I'm okay because I do good works or I'm okay because I'm respected in the community. Any attempt to justify your salvation other than Jesus, or even Jesus plus, any attempt to justify salvation other than Jesus alone is a lie. You're deceiving yourself. So Jesus says to them and to us, the true connection is spiritual. Abraham believed God, and that's what made him righteousness, righteous. He's saying, you don't really believe God. That's the problem. And I know that you don't believe God because you don't believe me, and I came from the Father. And again, he acknowledges, sure, you're religious, but not all religious people are children of God. There's a little editorial note here. It doesn't matter which of these options is correct. It's interesting to talk about them. It doesn't matter which option is correct, the spiritual trash talking about Jesus' mother or the supposed legitimacy of being heirs of Abraham. It doesn't matter because in either case, the problem is they don't believe. That's the biggest problem. We need to remember that the whole reason John wrote this gospel is that we might believe, that they might believe. And all this arguing about Abraham in today's passage really boils down, I think, to Genesis 15, verse 6 where it says, and Abraham believed the Lord and God credited him with righteousness. Abraham was righteous because he believed. We need to believe in Jesus, into Jesus. Uh, it's funny, and I mean that funny ironically. If you understand the history of Israel, if you understand the chronological history and order of the prophets of the Old Testament, if you understand how the Old Testament uh, is constructed and its connection to the New Testament, you know that God has been silent toward the Israelites for the last 400 years prior to Jesus coming. For 400 years, there was, there, there was no new revelation from God. Malachi and Nehemiah were the last two books 
chronologically, historically, in the Old Testament. So understand it this way. The Pharisees have spent 400 years developing a religion void of relationship. That's their problem. And the result is they don't know God anymore. They don't believe God. And they're in bondage to themselves, and they're in bondage to their traditions. And, and understand, that can happen to anybody at any time because it's so passive in nature. I heard this the other day, and please, if, if you're a fan of Denny's, I do not mean to denigrate Denny's, okay? But I heard this the other day from a pastor. He said, um, uh, becoming a Pharisee is like going to Denny's. You don't really intend to go there in the first place. <laughs> I'm very sorry if you like Denny's. See, they had the knowledge of God in their hands in, in the, the scriptures. They had that. We, we have this. We have these things. They had it for the four, 400 years, but they decided to turn away and do their own thing. I want you to listen to this. It's, it's, it's the longest quote I'll probably ever do in church. It's from Jeff Surratt, who's a pastor in California. I just want you to listen to what he writes. This is really good. He writes, I wonder how long I could be successful in ministry without God. I've been in vocational ministry for 31 years, and I seldom encounter a situation I haven't seen before. I have a stockpile of sermons to pull from and many other places where I can grab a complete sermon with a mo moment's notice. I do strategy, staffing, and structure in my sleep, my experience, connections, and the internet. Give me the tools, all the tools that I need to do ministry and do it at a very high level. God is good, but often not all that necessary. So how about you? How long could your church function and function well without God? You have your sermons planned through Easter, you have your songs loaded into the planning center and your small group resources are available online. You have a well-trained staff of volunteers and a great paid staff. The people who attend your church know that they will have a quality experience every weekend regardless of what might happen behind the scenes. Certainly God is welcome at your church, but is he really necessary? Israel created an elaborate and efficient church that ran very well without God. The priests and Levites excelled in their roles. The sacrificial system was geared to handle the crowds at Passover. And the Jewish people knew their needs were met with consistency and care. 400 years after God stepped away, the Jews no longer missed him. They had created a church without God. Then one weekend, he showed up. He ignored their order of service. He tore up their resource table and he violated their procedures. Finally, they had to either completely change the way they did church or kill God. They chose to kill God. Now, I'm all for policies, procedures, strategy, training, planning, and technology. And I am amazed to see how efficiently churches use these tools to reach people far from God and lead them into biblical discipleship. What scares me, however, is how easily we can substitute the tools of worship for genuine worship. How often we find ourselves worshiping the creation rather than the creator. How many weekends we leave church feeling satisfied because the music was good, the sermon was well received, and the attendance was up without even considering if God was pleased. It's not all that hard to build a ministry without God. What a terrifying place to be. That's what the Israelites had done. And so we see in verse 43 where Jesus says to these religious professionals who are doing godless church, you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, literally, what you cannot bear, it, it literally, you are not able, you don't have the power to hear what I'm saying, and that's your problem. Not able to bear translates a Greek word that we get the word dynamite from. It's dunamis. So literally, the word means power. You don't have any power 
You don't have the enabling fuel to hear what I have to say. And the reason is because you're so blinded by your self-protective prejudice. You've given up your power to see and hear the truth because really what you desire is worldly power and worldly status. And by the way, where would that power come from to be able to hear me? It would come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to work in our lives. So here you go. This is, this is the ask I have for you, but with more force than an ask. I'm beseeching. The Holy Spirit is here. That's not in question. The question is, are we welcoming him? Are we begging him to enter our lives, to fill us up, to lead, guide, and direct us? I'm beseeching you to welcome the Holy Spirit. He's here. Let's welcome the Holy Spirit so that we can hear and see God. It's so important. And finally, for this little section, Jesus says in the last part of verse 40 and in 41, what he says there seems incongruous unless you understand where Jesus is going with this, which is going to be the second part of this uh, passage. In the last half of 40, he says, you know, you're trying to kill me, which means that you, you don't believe me, and this is not what Abraham did. So you are really not the offspring of Abraham. But in 41, he says, but you are doing the works that your father did. Okay, so Jesus says, Abraham's not your father, but you're doing the works that your father did. I'm confused, which is it, Jesus? Well, he's about to explain, and the explanation is not going to please these guys. What he's going to tell them is that your father is the devil. Your father is Satan. So here it is, 44 through 47. You are of your father, the devil. Could you imagine just standing there and watching him say that to these guys? You are of the, your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? That's a rhetorical question. They can't convict him of any sin. If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. So verse 44, in one sense, Jesus says, you know, okay, you got your digs in at me about my mother. Cool. But guess what? Your father is Satan. Honestly, at Preaching Collective, I was hoping we'd just avoid the reality of that, but everybody was saying, kind of sounds like a little tit for tat there, you know? It really does. In Ephesians, Paul call, calls those who don't know the salvation of Jesus uh, children or offspring of wrath, which is essentially the same thing. And Jesus goes on to say that their father, the one whose work they do, was and is a liar, and a fa the father of all lies, and he's a murderer from the beginning. I love the way the NIV translates this. When Satan lies, he speaks his native language. His native language is not Greek or Hebrew, but lying. So what is Jesus referencing here? And I think it's pretty clear if you know your Old Testament, and especially if you know Genesis, and really especially if you know Genesis chapter 3. The devil lied to Eve. He deceived Eve to get her, her and Adam to sin against God, which is the very first sin and the most devastating sin in all of history. It's the sin that, that plunged all of creation, including us, into corruption. It's the sin that infects us all, that we're born into. That one lie, because it spawns all other lies, makes the devil the father of all lies. We need to understand the incredible power that lives have, lies have over our lives. And the reason is because the person that we lie to the most is ourself. We lie to others. Interesting book in 2018, um, Seth Davidovitz wrote a book called Everybody Lies. It's true. 
And Satan loves getting us to do that, to lie not only to others, but especially to ourselves. That's where he does his best work is when we're lying to ourselves. And finally, the devil is a murderer from the beginning because that lie, which Eve and Adam embraced, caused their plunge into darkness. It caused their death, both their spiritual death and eventually their physical death. The scholar Craig Keener writes this, Jewish teaching and tradition depicts the devil as a liar who deceived Eve and therefore also as the first murderer who brought death on the human race. So by saying this, Jesus saying, you're the son of this liar and this murderer, he's not messing around with these guys. He's taken this debate up a notch at this point. So as we wrap up, let me read 47 again. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is, is that you are not of God. Uh, it's a rough nine verses, but I think you could maybe boil it down to this. The emphasis in these nine verses is about truth, lies, and our will and desires as compared to submitting our will and desires to God. So it's truth, lies, and then our will and desires and the problems that our will and desires cause us. It's the fundamental problem. Again, we've, we've talked about this now for weeks. It seems like the human condition, this is what we do. If we agree with what God says, then it must be true. But if we don't agree with what God says or we don't like what God says, then it must not be true or even worse, it's a lie of some sort. And we put that on God. But that's our will and our desires at work. That, that, that fleshly part that Paul says in Romans 7 that we wrestle with all the time, that we're constantly at war with, that's not God's desire or will. See, we believe that our truth trumps God's truth. That's a problem. We believe, we've been told repeatedly now by our culture that, that there are many truths and that truth is, the only truth that's real is contextually bound and really it's just bound by the context of you. You keep your truth. Everybody has their truth. Uh, 20 years ago at ASU, if you said anything about truth, in an absolute way in a classroom, you were immediately shut down and said there is no absolute truth and there is no capital T truth. Well, now there is a capital T truth. That we've, we've kind of gone through this weird thing with truth where now the capital T truth is your truth. That's the capital T truth. That's the absolute truth that you live your life by. But what's the problem there? It should be pretty obvious and it's something we keep trying to ignore in our world, that means that there are, what, seven billion truths out there? And what happens when those truths start to collide? What happens when the, I think we're kind of seeing a little of that in our world today. Everybody's sure they've got it all figured out. You can't live in community, you can't live in relationship, you can't live in society with this idea that everybody's got their own truth and it's never going to impinge on anybody else's truth. That becomes a problem. And if we all have our truth, we can't all be right. There's no way that all of us are correct. Again, it's funny, and, and again, it's ironically funny, not haha funny, and should be alarmingly funny to us. I want you to think about this. Jesus' evangelism here for the last couple of chapters, Jesus' evangelism is to people who believe they already have the God thing wired. He's talking to people who believe that they know God and that they are saved. But Jesus is warning them. So here's a fun question. Is there a warning from Jesus for us today in this passage? Jesus says, you know, there is truth. And the truth is me. Truth and I cannot be separated. And that's because I come from the Father. And I do my Father's will. And if you don't abide in me, you don't abide in my word. As I abide in my Father, he says, then you're under the spell of your own will 
under the spell of your own desires, and you are children of Satan. And you've deceived yourselves. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not, mo- God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. Do not be deceived. I hate that translation. Do not be deceived. And the reason is because the verb there, translated deceived, is in the first person. It literally says, do not deceive yourself. Those who mock God and reap what they sow are self-deceived. You're deceiving yourself. The biggest challenge is to get past the lies that we are telling ourselves. That's the biggest challenge. And he's trying to get that idea through to them as well. And I know, I know that if you don't know Jesus, you might find this silly. I know you don't feel this way. And you're sure that this is probably Looney Tunes. But this is what Scripture teaches. And so there is a decision to make. And, and it, may be an, it may be an active decision, and I hope it is. I hope there's an active response where you say, all right, that's it. I, I, I want Jesus. But there's also a passive decision that literally millions make all the time, every day. And that passive decision kind of goes like this. I don't know what he's so riled up about. I, you know, God's fine. He's got his thing. I got my thing. We're not bothering each other. Blah, blah, blah. You're deceived. And that's a passive decision that you're walking away from salvation. You've made a decision by not coming to Jesus. So the question is, is the Bible true or not? Do we believe God or not? Everyone is going to ultimately answer those questions. But here's another question. It's a long question. Isn't it wonderful that in the midst of our sin and our ignorance and our desires to push away God in favor of our own will and our own foolishness, isn't it amazing that God still loves and cares for us so much that he sent his son to do his mission of sacrifice for us? Isn't that amazing? That's pretty cool. You know what that is? That's grace. That's grace. Unmerited favor. He looks at us, and in spite of our desire to have nothing to do with him, he somehow works it out that we are worthy of the sacrifice of his son. That's amazing. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth, even when it's rough like today. And so we pray that somehow you would open our hearts and our minds, even even if they're open, I pray that you'd open them further. I've discovered in the decades that I've walked with you, I've discovered that there's always a little bit more to be done, a little bit more opening that is needed. So I pray that you would be able to do that for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our time of response, if you don't have a, uh, if you don't have a communion kit, you can run out to the lobby right now and grab one. That would be great. Uh, we're going to sing one more uh, song together as we take communion. Uh, Communion is that time that we do every week, and I I sure hope this doesn't become a routine because it's significant. It's essential. It's important. We do it every week because it's essential. We are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again by taking the bread and taking the cup. He invites us into this communion, and he does so Because he wants us to confess, yes, but he also wants us to celebrate the salvation that we have and to understand, for lack of a better term, the security that we have in his hope. So let's do that now.
receive this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.